A life well lived is not lived in fits and spurts. It's day in, day out. Lives are made one day at a time. And so there is the need for us to take hold of today. We thank God for his grace about yesterday. We hope in tomorrow, but we are here now, today. And we need to learn how to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called. The idea of even walking worthy, it means to bring the other beam of the scale into balance. A walk isn't just a walk. Sometimes we walk with determination and purpose. Other times we meander and daydream. As our lives march forward, each day is a series of choices, commitments, and responsibilities, and we should want to walk in the light of God's grace. As we'll hear today, our lives should speak to who Jesus is, even when we're oblivious that others are watching. Now, here's Pastor Daniel in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 1, with part one of our message entitled, Fruit in the Mess. It's been commonly said that hindsight is 2020. I don't like that phrase at all, I'll be honest with you. And the reason I don't like it is because it's so infinitely true. <laughs> It's like you, you get out the other side of a, of a mess and you look back on it through the eyes of experience and revelation from God and you realize, oh, that all makes total sense. I see now in retrospect what God was doing through a very challenging and messy situation. You know, I can look back on Maybe the messiest or one of the messiest situations that I ever went through when my mother was diagnosed with cancer when I was 19. She passed away when I was 21. You know, and in the midst of it, I mean, obviously, I mean, horrible situation for my family. Horrible. She was diagnosed at 47. She, she went home to be with the Lord at 49. You know, and, and in the midst of it, you're just trying to survive, right? And I didn't know the Lord at the time either, but I look back on those situations now with the benefit of God's Holy Spirit and some experience. And I say, wow, Lord, there was some beauty in the midst of that mess. There was fruit in the midst of the mess. Now, don't get me wrong. It'd be very easy to make the case that I'd give all that fruit back for just a couple more days with my mother because God didn't design us to die, but to live forever. But at the same time with that with the lens of the Holy Spirit looking back over life, you start to see fruit in the midst of the mess. Fruit in the midst of the mess. And so as we continue our study in the book of Ephesians, we're moving into that section now. We've seen over the first three chapters of the book of Ephesians all of this doctrine, all of this. This is the profession of the Christian faith. And we all the way through, we've been saying this is a mess, right? Our understanding of God is pretty messy, He's infinite and we are finite. And so our understanding of God, you know, God, one God and three persons, as we saw in the beginning of chapter one, it's like, that's not an easy thing to understand. It's kind of messy. We're still all learning and growing and God's word maybe isn't as specific and tightly knit up as we want it to be, but it's exactly what it needs to be because God wants us to walk by faith. 
You know, so our understanding of God is messy. Our understanding of ourselves is messy because we're fallen but yet beloved. We are fatally flawed yet love with an incomprehensible love. And then not only is our understanding of God messy and our understanding of ourselves and how we roll in the world messy, but then there's all these racial messiness. We've been spending a lot of time on that, haven't we? And I've been really going hard at the fact that the reason our prejudice is is folly is because in Christ, God could take someone who is the complete version of everything you despise in the world and make them your brother if they put their faith and trust, or sister if you, they put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And that's a challenging word. I've had a lot of people be like, you can't say that. I mean, how can you believe that a Muslim could come to Jesus or a Democrat could come to Jesus or a Republican can come to Jesus or, or why? Because it shows us that in Christ, no matter where you come down, Jesus levels the playing field. And prejudice is a folly because that person has the potentiality if they come to Jesus to become a family member. All of you know, right, you never, if your spouse is dating someone and, and goes to maybe get married to him, you never say, oh, I just can't stand that person because then all of a sudden they're at all the family functions, right? Social graces say, you know, you try and talk to them if you don't think it's a good idea, but you don't make blanket statements about them because they might end up being at Christmas for the rest of your life. You guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So, and that's messy because we have prejudices and we find that our prejudices are founded. But just as God is bringing heaven to earth in Jesus and God is bringing us to ourselves in Jesus, to who we really are, as God created us to be, God is also bringing humanity back together in Jesus, in Jesus. And that's why whatever our prejudices are, they fall before the cross of Jesus Christ. Because at the cross, anybody, and I mean anybody, can be completely redeemed and ushered into a family of faith through Jesus. There's no sin except rejecting Jesus that is unpardonable. Let's be honest, that's totally messy, isn't it? That's completely messy. In hindsight, it's not messy, but living in it is messy. Right? You can get back on the other side after God has totally changed somebody and they become part of the family. Like, I just love that person. But when it's all happening, when you're watching the person you despise give their life to Jesus, and now they're your brother, your sister, it's it's hard. Now, open up in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4 now. Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to take 16 verses. I'm going to be absolutely forthright with you. Trying to take all these 16 verses in something other than like five hours is a bummer for me. As I've been doing Ephesians with you guys, I'm just like, man, I should do this over like a year's study in Ephesians. Because like, we're hitting the tops of the waves, but man, I'd like to dig up each little verse and say, hey, what's underneath there? There's so much in here. There's so much in here. But this whole portion that we're going to look at, it's all about that God gives gifts, that there is fruit to be born in the middle of the mess. So we're going to take it section by section. But again, the first three chapters of Ephesians is all doctrine. It's all theology. And now chapters 4, 5, and 6 is all application. It's theology in action through the lives of the church. And in these verses, I have a very simple little little train, a little string that I'm going to run for you. So we're going to read. We're going to take it section by section. So look at this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. It says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, 
beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Now, that alone would make a great sermon right there. But to, to break it down, this, these six verses break very simply into two halves, verses 1 to 3 and then verses 4 to 6. And if you break it down, what these verses mean is that the fruit of humility is unity. The fruit of humility is unity. And then on the next one will be the fruit of something is something, and the fruit of something is something. That's how this little string I'm going to run. The fruit of humility, the outgrowth of humility is unity. Now, and this is going to be very applicable, whether it talks about unity within a congregation, a local congregation, unity in a marriage, unity at your place of work, unity for us as a country. Our needs for unity exist on many, many levels. But notice, the fruit of humility is unity. One of the reasons we have such division in our world is because we have a lack of humility. But don't forget, the Apostle Paul is not speaking to the United States government or even the Roman government. He's speaking to a local congregation in Ephesus. Look what he says. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord Jesus, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, that word, beseech you, that's old English. It means I implore you, I'm begging you. Paul's saying, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I beg you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Brothers and sisters, each one of our lives is a walk. A well-lived life is lived one day at a time. The rabbis were very clear with that. If you read the book of Genesis, or the way the Jewish people spoke about someone's age, it was how many are the days of the years of your life? We just say, how old are you? But the way they would say it in Hebrew is how many, how many are the days of the years of your life? Why? Because a life is lived one day at a time. And for those of you who used to watch soap operas back in the day, infinite seasons of one day at a time, Right? But a life in Christ, a life well-lived, is not lived in fits and spurts. It's day in, day out. Lives are made one day at a time. And so there is the need for us to take hold of today. We thank God for his grace about yesterday. We hope in tomorrow, but we are here now, today. And we need to learn how to walk worthy of the calling with which we were called the idea of even walking worthy, it means to bring the other beam of the scale into balance. So it's saying, because Jesus is this, Paul is exhorting the church in Ephesus to even the scale by walking out in such a way that the practice of the church matches what we proclaim to be true about Jesus. This speaks of our testimony, doesn't it, to the world? That we should live in such a way that we make Jesus attractive 
Because we live in such a way, it's so unique from everybody else. We have a different set of values. We do things differently. We think differently. So that's walking worthy. We're balancing the scales. Because this is who Jesus is, we walk this way. Now, how are we supposed to do that? And you move into verse 2, and you get these four graces of unity, four points of what it looks like to be unified. And all of it points to the idea of humility. Notice, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, or some of your translations have the word forbearing. So lowliness, that is classic humility. Now, I love the Bible because I would not say that humility and lowliness is my strong suit. So it's like if I was going to like make up a sermon series, it wouldn't be one on humility. I remember when I first got saved, one of my Christian friends, one of the first books they gave me was the book Humility by Andrew Murray. And I remember reading, I get in the book, I'm like, thanks, bro. I'm like, I get it, I get it. So I wouldn't choose to do a sermon series on humility because I don't really feel like that I'm like a model of humility. But what's the, what's the converse of humility? Pride, right? Thinking that you're the stuff. So it begins this worthy walk with lowliness. When you think about the idea of humility or lowliness, it's saying, I realize that I am what God says I am, not what I have conditioned myself to think of myself as. People always say to me, Pastor Daniel, how do I get humble? And I'm always like, Psh, I don't know. <laughs> but then after I say that, I say, everywhere in the Bible that someone gets into the presence of God, there is some sort of vocalizing of humility, whether it's Isaiah, who sees the Lord in the train of his robe, and he says, woe is me as I am undone. When Peter is obedient to Jesus, even though he's been surfing, uh, uh, fishing the, the Sea of Galilee his whole life, and he lets down those nets, and, and, those, and those nets are breaking, he's like, I am an unclean man. The Apostle John, in the presence of angels, in the book of Revelation, every time there's an angelic being, he is on his face. So I believe humility is born in the presence of God nowhere else, nowhere else. No amount of negative circumstances will make you humble, only the presence, the pure presence of the living God. So there's this lowliness. Then there's gentleness. Gentleness can be translated as meekness or mildness of character. So gentleness is humility in action. When you think of yourself rightly, poor in spirit, then you are gentle with people. Now, for you guys, listen, this is in the Bible. And I know it's not macho to be gentle. But our job is not to be macho. Our job is to be like Jesus. So gentleness is realizing that people are fragile and taking care of them in such a way. So there's lowliness. There's gentleness. And then, of course, it keeps going because then it says, with long-suffering. Now, that means patience, right? When we realize how long-suffering God is with us, then we just pass that along. The problem with pride is it's Pride doesn't see itself for what it truly is. It sees itself for some picture that we've developed over time. God is infinitely patient with all of humanity. And we should be patient with others. 
That's why it's called long-suffering. It's suffering long. That's what patience is. It's willing to give people the room to be in process, knowing that we're in process. So we have this lowliness. We have this gentleness. We have this long-sufferingness, and then bearing with one another in love, this forbearance. It literally means to hold somebody up. It has the idea to put up with someone's faults and idiosyncrasies in love. Now, that's hard, isn't it? But where is it found? It's found in knowing that we have faults and idiosyncrasies. Jesus used the parable of the guy who wants to deal with the speck in his brother's eyes while he has a plank in his own eye. Very provocative statement. The idea is it's, you have a piece of sawdust in your eye. Yeah, well, you have a four by eight coming out of your eye. And you see what he's doing. He's like, yeah, you have a little piece of sawdust, and that's really bugging me, but I have a four by eight which is, could make infinite numbers pieces of sawdust. And so the idea is Jesus is saying the same thing, that this unity, the fruit of humility then becomes unity. And one of the biggest issues humanity has is that we're not lowly, we're not gentle, we don't long suffer with one another, and we don't hold each other up and forbear with one another in love. Instead, everyone's looking at everybody else seeing what everyone else is doing wrong rather than saying, what am I, how am I, who am I? And how does it work? And right as there's pride, there is a separation. Because the problem with pride is not only is it not rooted in reality, it's not agreeing with God on what God said we ought to be. Pride is saying, I am better than you. I have it more together than you. I am smarter, better looking, more successful, whatever, than you rather than saying, I am a sinner in need of a savior. So all this is about humility. Verse 3, look, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, that's that little bridge there. So we have these four graces of humility, and we should be endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. So the fruit of humility is unity. And then you get it, of course, here into verse 4, and we get these Three couplings, three groups of three nouns, all about unity, all about unity. And you'll notice here, verse 4, you have the Spirit. Verse 5, you have the Lord speaking of Jesus. And then verse 6, you have the God and Father. So you have the Trinity here in, the, in these three verses, the Spirit in verse 4, the Lord Jesus in verse 5, and then the Father in verse 6. Three sets of three nouns. Let's look at them. The fruit of humility is unity. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. The church of Jesus Christ is a single visible community. And we always have to keep that in mind, don't we? Here we're at Crossroads Community Church. If you were to drive around the county, there's all sorts of other churches. But there's really only one church. Church with a big C, the church of Jesus Christ. And we always have to, we, look, I love what we do at Crossroads. I've always heard you should pastor a church you'd want to go to, and I'd want to go to Crossroads if I wasn't a pastor here. But we have to remember that we are not in competition with some other church because Jesus has only got one church, church with a big C. So even though we love what we do and we celebrate what we do, we're totally good with other people. Now, we might not agree on everything, but we should work that out. I think what happens is, is and, and, and in a lot of ways, we're coming out of a season that is that in Christianity where everyone was... That, like we're fighting for 
jockeying for position. I don't know what that's all about. I just know Jesus isn't into that. Do you remember the, the apostles came? They, they even sent John and James. They sent their mom. It's total. That's mean, isn't it? Send your mom to petition Jesus to give them places of honor. I mean, isn't that just wrong? They figured, man, he's a son of God, but man, he loved his mom, and so maybe he'll be real nice to my mom. But John and James, they, they wanted positions of honor, and Jesus is like, can you even drink the cup that I'm going to drink of and be baptized? See, James and John had it all wrong. And Jesus says to them, listen, don't be like the Gentiles. Don't think you're big stuff. See, we're not in competition with other churches. We do have a competition, though, and we're in a competition with Satan. That's the only guy that I want to have a competition with. And guess what? I read the end of the Bible, so guess what? We already win that one. How cool is that? See, the battle that we do is not against some other church. It's against a world that lives in rebellion against God. And on our warfare, is not guns. It's not mean words. It's love and self-sacrificial service. And you know what? Love and self-sacrificial service is infinitely attractive. So there's only one church. And that one church, that one church, that one body is put together by the one spirit. Spirit of God, who indwells the body of Christ. There's not multiple spirits, there's one. There's the Holy Spirit. And that spirit knits us together as a family of faith. And because there's only one body and there's one spirit, now we have one hope of our calling. And that hope is that we will forever be with Christ, whether on this side or on the other side, whether in this life or in the life to come, that we have been united to Christ by the guarantee of the Holy Spirit. So it makes sense that the one body with the one spirit and the one hope of our calling are all together because it's all the work of the Holy Spirit. He makes us a family of faith and he gives us this hope that high up or low down, we will forever be with Jesus. That is the hope of the people of God. Then in verse five, we move to the Lord Jesus, one Lord or master. This is Jesus to whom we all owe all of our obedience. Now I'm here to tell you this. You either bowed your knee to the master or you are living in rebellion against him. There's no kind of middle ground. Now, sure, there's some people who haven't bowed their knee, but they're pretty good folks, like they were raised right, they've chosen to live a good life. But you have either joined his army or you are on the opposing army. That's what the Bible says. And I'm not going to try and wiggle around that. That idea of Lord, it means a master. It's the one who, to whom we owe allegiance. And some of us in here today, watching in the chapel, on another venue online, you need to simply say yes to Jesus today. You need to. Because there's one Lord. There's one Lord. And you need to get right with that Lord by saying, yes, okay, I'm not the Lord. Or so-and-so's not the Lord. Really, all of the issues that humanity has comes down to this point. Who is the Lord? In Paul's day, it was Caesar is Lord. And that's why he keeps saying Jesus is Lord, because Caesar is not. Jesus is I want to thank you so much for listening to Jesus' Real Radio. We are on the radio because we want to see all of God's children learn how to simply respond to Jesus. Jesus is at street level. He is where the rubber meets the road in your world 
in my world, right where we are and where everybody is. And it is our hope to see Jesus' Real Radio reach every single living soul who is alive on the earth in this generation. God's heart is that not any should perish, but that all would come to repentance. And we realize the radio is an amazing opportunity to reach some of the more than six or seven billion people on the earth. So listen. We're on the radio because people have given so that we can be. Now listen, God is generous and God invites us to be generous in the entirety of our lives. You should be plugged into a local church and you should be faithfully giving to that local church. We thank God for the local congregation scattered all over the world. But if you're one of those people who want to step into giving over and above what you would to your local congregation, and if you're being blessed by the Jesus is Real Radio ministry, we would invite you to come and partner with us. Literally, we want to see the message of the good news of the finished work of Jesus not only reach everybody here in America, but everybody across Europe, in the 1040 window, across Southeast Asia, all the way, all the way to the Far East for us. We want everyone here, and it's going to take people like you and like me to step on into that. So seek the Lord and simply respond to Jesus, and we're going to trust Him to do all that He wants to do with Jesus' real radio. God bless you. Bye.